So here we go. I think it should be recording right now. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sapiens Playground. To get, today, I have a very, very special, very important guest on. It's Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, many of you guys have probably heard him talk on, on the Joe Rogan podcast. So again, thanks a lot for coming on. It's a real honor to have you on. Well, thanks for having me. Well, uh, Peter McCullough, maybe for those who are not that familiar with your work, I maybe haven't heard you on Joe Rogan or on any other platform. Um, if you might, to just give a brief introduction to who you are, what you do, and you know what's kind of your role in in the whole situation that we are stuck in right now. Oh, sure, I'd be glad to. I've I've had some exposure to German audiences in the past. I've been on with Uwe Schlatter of Klartext, and it's a pleasure to join uh, German and European audiences again. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist cardiologist. I'm trained in epidemiology. I'm an academic practice in Dallas, Texas. I'm well known among uh, academic physicians. I have over 650 peer-reviewed publications in the National Library of Medicine. I focused on heart and kidney disease. I'm the editor-in-chief of cardio uh, of uh, reviews in cardiovascular medicine, the former editor of Cardiorenal Medicine, the editor of the first textbook, the inaugural textbook, Cardiorenal Medicine. I have over 50 papers now since I've dedicated my efforts to COVID-19 over the last two years, 50 papers on the pandemic response, including the two seminal papers uh, proposing treatment of patients with COVID-19 to avoid hospitalization and death. And so I've been asked uh, to testify in the U.S. Senate now twice. I just uh, recently came off a five-hour Senate hearing, uh, which I co-moderated under Ron Johnson in the U.S. Senate building in Washington, D.C. I was the lead uh, academic presenter at the uh, Lincoln Memorial uh, crowd uh, march uh, <clears throat> to drop the vaccine mandates. <clears throat> and I've uh, provided uh, my testimony in multiple state senates. I'm a regular contributor on Fox News, Newsmax, uh, OAN. And uh, I think the reason why is because I've given accurate uh, and correct information on the COVID-19 pandemic, a particularly important uh, inflection points. I was original first first year of the pandemic. I was a regular contributor in the print journal, The Hill. And the second year now, I have my own podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report, where I have given America and the world accurate information, cited information about the pandemic response, which is greatly needed. Well, yeah, it's it's absolutely great, greatly needed in, in these times. And um well, let's let's dive right right into it because there's a bunch of things that I would like to talk with, uh, about with you. And so the first thing is one th that that you already mentioned right now. It's like the whole thing regarding early treatment, and that's what we would probably agree on is something that has been actively or not willingly or unwillingly. We really don't know, but disregarded in in the whole in the entire two years of you know management, so to speak, of the pandemic. And so one one thing that I've been really curious about is what's your what's your explanation for why treatment hasn't been really pushed that much or implemented in in this entire time. So there's been actually a, a real backlash against treatment, saying things like, "Yeah, who, who anyone who pretends that there's a cure for COVID or that there's a treatment for COVID should be like banned or censored for mis for spreading misinformation." So why do you think? we have something like that actually going on where whereas you would actually think that if we are in such a terrible situation as a pandemic we would try everything possible and every possible medication to actually treat patients 
Sure. I mean, that's been the shortcoming, and that's what I told Americans uh, this last weekend. The shortcoming is none of the governments and none of the government public health agencies have given a full-throated support for doctors to do all they can to prevent hospitalization and death. And uh, the, the, the fact that our government agencies fail to support doctors, I think historians will record for decades uh, to come in the future. It's a giant, giant mistake not to <coughs> support the doctors when they need that support. They need full support to use an entire range of medicines that they deem in their clinical practice can help patients avoid hospitalization and death. This is a respiratory illness, uh, uh, and it's an illness that doctors, uh, forms of this illness, doctors have managed for years, but they do need full support for this. And if doctors have found that certain combinations of drugs are particularly successful, and there's the signals of benefit, acceptable safety, then the doctor makes that decision. The doctor under no, under no circumstances should receive any negative communications on early treatment, should have any impediment to implementing top, top of the line care. In the United States, uh, we now know that the nasal virucidal washes are very effective. We're using this first line now. That's using right. dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide. Uh, you know, it takes about a half a teaspoon in a shot glass of water uh, squirt it up the nose, sniff it back, and spit it out. That's with povidone iodine. Highly effective, done four times a day. Dramatically reduces the risks of progression of disease and hospitalization mm -hmm. by over 70%. 12 clinical studies show that. Uh, we have uh, now a dilute hydrogen peroxide, uh, about three quarters of a teaspoon, a shot glass of water, 1.5 ounces, same process. So virucidal treatment has yet to be even mentioned by any public health relief agency. It's widely used across uh, India, Bangladesh, elsewhere. It's widely used in the United States. It's part of the Association of American Physicians Home Treatment Guide, for instance, part of the McCullough Protocol, which is copyrighted mm. protocol. Now, so we use that first line. We use nutraceuticals, uh, including uh, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, over-the-counter uh, antihistamine medication called famotidine. And then we can use monoclonal antibodies. In the United States, we have the right. GlaxoSmithKline, right. Sotirivimab. Uh, it's the one that remaining that covers Omicron. Uh, it's highly effective. It can be used down to age 12. And then we have oral antivirals, including hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. They were used primarily in, in years one and two of the pandemic, but now we have Paxlovid from Pfizer, the new molnupiravir Merck drug. So we have many oral drugs. We add as needed intracellular antibiotics, uh, inhaled steroids, oral steroids, oral colchicine, aspirin, and anticoagulants. But but the, the idea that our public health agencies would not promote these highly effective treatments. Drugs used in combination now, my estimate is 95% of hospitalizations and deaths can be avoided. And there are no clinical trials putting uh, all these drugs in combination yet. So this is far ahead of the clinical trials. This is common in medicine where doctors figure out an approach long before the clinical trials catch up to clinical practice. Uh, but our agencies to this date are only promoting one thing, and that's the vaccine. <clears throat> Well, that's 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 probably the question. Like, why why is it is it is it just to promote um, the vaccine? It's just to get people vaccinated, or why why should we actually why should everyone disregard treatment? And actually, why should there be that backlash against treatment? Like the claim is, well, there's no evidence. Um, I'm not. I'm absolutely against um, these claims because, um, as, as you mentioned, everything that we have should be used to treat patients, and especially if we have. Uh, evidence that it might be very, very useful. But, you know, the claim is 
um, there is not enough evidence or the evidence not clear. And then there is like people who try to say that um, or doctors who try to claim that there might be harm associated with it. So you might do harm to patients. So what's what's the response to that? I can tell you uh, <coughs> there are dozens of papers with the monoclonal antibodies. They're safe and effective. They do not cause harm. I've looked at it carefully. And those doctors claiming, uh, in fact, there's not enough evidence to use monoclonal antibodies, they're going against the, the federal agencies. Even the federal agencies have given them emergency use authorization. They're really wonderful agents. There's <coughs> no doubt about it. Same thing for the Pfizer and Merck drugs. They have a full EUA approval. And uh, the, the Pfizer drug, which is a novel chimerase-like E3 inhibitor plus uh, ritonavir, an older protease inhibitor, has to be given twice a day. It's a, a bit cumbersome in terms of its dosing, but it was associated with over 85% reductions in hospitalization and death. So doctors that are arguing against the use of Pfizer or against the use of the Merck drug, about 30% benefit with the Merck drug, uh, at this point in time, they're, they're simply spreading misinformation. They're harming patients who need treatment. Well, what's what's the what's the thing with um, with the whole ivermectin story? Because that was like a whole controversy in and of itself. I, I remember the 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 time when Joe Rogan post, posted his his clip, you know, where he was telling all the things that he used to treat um, his um, basically his COVID um, case there. Uh, so when he con when he when he got COVID, and you know, the media actually uh, they 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 didn't say anything about anything that he mentioned in, in spite of like in, uh, like only about only about ivermectin they only try to, to catch him on like ivermectin and say ha he's promoting that horse dewormer drug so why why are people so um why do they try to again um maybe monoclonal antibodies there's lots of evidence people continue to say that we don't have enough evidence for ivermectin even though that that would probably not that would probably not be a strong enough argument to say that we should not try ivermectin and treat patients because it still might help and they still might be some evidence which pointed to that direction. Well, there's a historical uh, context. When we first started in the pandemic and I was very involved in pandemic response, uh, the, the very first drug we had was hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. And over time, hydroxychloroquine did amass over 300 supportive studies where the benefit is about a 25% uh, overall clinical benefit. So it's not Right, right. Next came ivermectin. Don't forget hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin came before the monoclonal antibodies and before the Merck and Pfizer drugs. This is natural in medicine that there's a historical progression. Ivermectin, there's uh, over 60 supportive studies, about a 70% about a benefit. <clears throat> then we have the monoclonal antibodies that came in. We had the Lilly product, bamalivimab, it, uh, the alpha variant quickly became resistant to it. So did the South African variant. So then it was uh, pulled off the market, reintroduced with a combination of urticivimab. That was a Lilly product. We had the Regeneron combination product of carisivimab and indomimab. Uh, that was our mainstay throughout. And then we have most recently sotirivimab by GSK. So these products went through an evolution of testing. And then we had inhaled budesonide, three supportive studies, one large clinical trial, the STOIC trial, over 80% reductions in hospitalization and death. We have the oral steroids meta-analysis, about a 30% mortality reduction. And then the Colchicine trial for colchicine, the largest prospective double-blind randomized trial is actually with colchicine, uh, where there is a statistically significant reductions in hospitalization and death. So <clears throat> we have a broad base 
of drugs. We have a broad pharmacopoeia. Why certain individuals picked out just one or two drugs? In the first year, they picked out hydroxychloroquine and in a sense tried to politicize it. Well, hydroxychloroquine wasn't the linchpin to treatment. And then in year two, they tried to pick hydroxychloroquine. In fact, it's been so uh, perverse with hydroxy, uh, with, um, <coughs> with ivermectin, I'm sorry. It's so perverse with ivermectin that yeah, yeah. the American Medical Association in the United States, which is a physician political action uh, committee, has launched a campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin. Abolish right. the right. use. Now, this is used first line in Mexico, South America, India, Japan. Uh, it's yeah. widely used in the United States. So why hydroxychloroquine? And then why ivermectin uh, uh, as almost points of, uh, of, of contention while all the other drugs were continued to be used? It's interesting that Dr. Yeah. Chetty in South Africa, Dr. Eugenia Barentios in South America, they came up with treatment protocols that don't use ivermectin hydroxychloroquine. So the question is, well, what do the naysayers have to say then? We, we don't need it. Well, well, yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's, well, that's super interesting. interesting. And, um, and um, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, know how things know. will continue we'll to develop in regards to regards early treatments. Early treatments. Um, um, but yeah, let's, but yeah, let's move let's, to another, to another sort, of, sort of area of, area of, of, topic. of topic. And so that's, and so that's, that's basically all the, basically all the false premises, premises, conceptions that underlie, underlie the pandemic the response. response. And I've received some, some questions from, and also questions that I've been asking myself uh, in regards to um, what the whole thing was based upon. And so um, basically many, many things that we do, like all this mass testing and um, masking of people and say social distancing and lockdowns, et cetera, is based on the premise that there is this thing um, <clears throat> as asymptomatic spread. So you can be asymptomatic and don't feel anything, but still spread COVID. So how legit is that? How 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 real is asymptomatic spread? Because you know that's that's what people already accepted. It's like something, yeah, and that's why we should do testing because you can be positive and not even know that you're positive, and then you spread the virus and infect everyone. It was a a preconceived, uh, pre-baked false narrative. Uh, there's never been a disease in the history of mankind where someone is asymptomatic and they give it to somebody else. Uh, it's always symptomatic to symptomatic for a respiratory infection. So it was a false concept that was put out there and accepted. In fact, there were papers published, modeling papers, you know, estimating that 30 to 50 percent of the spread was asymptomatic. It was all completely false. Two key papers, one by Cow, 10 million Chinese, one by Madewell, clearly mm -hmm. demonstrated Asymptomatic spread is, <coughs> is negligible. It basically doesn't happen. That means all this masking and lockdown was, was fraudulent. Mm -hmm. It was all based on a false assumption that was put out mm -hmm. by public health agencies. It means that uh, all this asymptomatic testing <coughs> is, uh, is fraudulent. In fact, mm -hmm. the agencies know that. You know, the FDA has never cleared a test for asymptomatic testing. Neither has the EU or any other authority. Asymptomatic testing is a complete overreach over regulatory mm. law. Yeah. <coughs> in fact, it just generates false positive results for asymptomatic testing. There's never been a scientific study supporting asymptomatic testing. And so mm. it should absolutely positively be dropped. Right. Asymptomatic testing should go away as we know it right now. It means never take a test to get on an airplane or cross a border. <coughs> the World Health Organization says, don't mm. do it. it. It should be banned. 
Well, yeah. Um, but, you know, to maybe play some devil's advocate here, which I'm continuously going to do because I think that's maybe important for those to hear for those people who, um, who you know, who still maybe hold on to these premises. So um, what about that? Um, what about incubation period? You know, because there's probably such thing as you can, or is it, is, it, is, it, is it a thing that you might be infectious before actually developing symptoms? And so that, you know, that's where you might be, um, you might be as asymptomatic basically before you actually start developing symptoms. And so how, how do you, how would you then um, distinguish that from an asymptomatic case who, who tests positive, but actually never moves on developing symptoms in the first place? It always has to do with the perceptiveness of symptoms, whether it's a runny nose, nasal congestion, sore throat, fever, virus. It has to do with perception of symptoms. If someone feels completely well, they can't spread it. But as soon as they start to have symptoms, then they can spread it. You know, Joe Rogan and I talked about this because uh, <coughs> when I went to his center, we had both recovered from COVID. Mm -hmm. So I said, Joe, why are we taking a test? He said, well, because, uh, you know, we have an insurance policy. I said, well, that's a dumb reason. Why don't we be, be smart and not take tests if we don't have symptoms? We've already recovered from COVID. He didn't have a good answer because uh, he knew I was right. And then he used the example. He says, well, one of my friends, uh, we were playing pool with him, and he thought he was getting sick. And, in fact, he spread COVID to everybody. I said, well, yeah, that's because he's symptomatic. Mm. So we just need to call a spade a spade. When people are asymptomatic, they can't spread it, period. And so we need to end this madness. Now, if people feel sick, they should stay at home. Right. So, and that's that. That has been the rule for the like, forever. Like since 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 disease exists, it's had always been the, the most important rule. If you're sick, then stay at home and don't get outside. Okay. So so another thing that you that have already mentioned is the whole mask thing, right? So. Um, you know, there's been there's allegedly been conflicting evidence on masks, and there's been this back and forth thing, and like at least at least there was the case here in Germany where authorities were first saying, well, masks are sort of effective, then no, they they're not, and you know, it's been going back and forth, and so now we are we have mask mandates everywhere, and so what's the thing with masks? Because um, even even if we might, you know, just just from a from a uh, sort of intuitive perspective people might say well but i'm i'm covering my face or at least less particles are coming through so wouldn't it wouldn't it even like help a little bit well i mean we could take some uh <coughs> examples if two people do not have the virus and they both are wearing masks and they both take off their masks but they don't have the virus there's obvious the virus can't spread because they don't have the virus. So it should be clear to people that if they don't have the virus, <clears throat> a mask can't possibly help. Now, again, based on the idea of asymptomatic spread, probably. Well, well, let's just say they just don't have it. If they don't have the virus, if you've got 500 people in a room and they don't have the virus, it's impossible for masks to ever do anything. I, mean, I think everybody would agree, right? So the issue is, what if one person has the virus and they have symptoms? Well, in fact, when they start to cough, the virus moves right through the mask. Mm -hmm. Mask only filters out about 300 microns. The, the virus is 100 microns, so it easily moves outside the mask. Uh, mask expert Stephen Pat 
country in the United States has done all the uh, experiments. About 18% of the air moves around the mask, moves around the mask. So all the experts would agree that once somebody is sick with the virus, the virus is going to come through the mask and it's going to go around the mask. <clears throat> so it should be obvious by going through this line of thinking that masks won't stop the spread of the virus. They won't. <clears throat> now, I'm a cardiologist. I'm a doctor. I'm in the hospital. I wear a mask because I could be working with a patient and I may cough or sneeze and it may stop droplets right. from landing on the patient, mainly out of courage. <clears throat> that's fine mm. but shouldn't it be obvious now shouldn't it be obvious that masks don't stop somebody who's sick from spreading the virus outwards it, it should be obvious now right right yeah that's that's a, that's a good point so another the next thing would be probably the whole thing regarding lockdowns and that's being that's been a very hard you know issue for me at least to take because I've been seeing all the harm that lockdowns produced, especially for like children and even without the children probably recognizing that they and they will that the lockdowns will produce lots of um, harm to them. And so uh, people lost their jobs and, um, you know, encountered various psychological issues. And so, um, you know, but people might say, well, lockdowns clearly have to work because you lock yourself down, you don't have contact with other people. But, uh, you know, that would probably be the first question. Do lockdowns actually work? And then, um, does that even mean anything? Because if the harm that lockdowns produce is so much greater than the potential benefit, then should we be even be thinking about implementing them in the first place? Lockdowns would work <clears throat> if you lock down the right people. The people to lock down are those acutely sick with the illness. Remember, when you're acutely sick, they can spread it to others, and the masks doesn't don't stop the spread. <clears throat> so it's clear <clears throat> those sick with the virus should be in lockdown. They should be in quarantine. Right. The only question is how long should that quarantine go? And our CDC has recently dropped it from 10 days to five days for asymptomatic mm. people, but we use it the same for symptomatic, provided the last two days there's no fever so lockdowns do work but for the small number of people who are acutely sick with COVID-19 again you know what we're doing here is we're just applying common sense sure common sense right if we lock down 500 people that don't have the virus it's not going to work right because they don't have the virus so all we Obviously. have to do is apply common sense and then we can navigate through these simple pandemic measures yeah and otherwise we'll produce just as we said, we produce more harm and we actually destroy society this way because people are not going to be able to see each other and to work and etc. Um, so yeah, and again, this is probably again everything, masks and lockdowns, all that, all these measure measures are all based on the idea and assumption that asymptomatics, asymptomatic, you know, people who tested um, positive asymptomatic are just as dangerous as sick people. That's probably kind of the most, uh, the biggest issue at work here. Um, and so another question, moving on to, to the next question, it's what do we now know about Omicron in general? Okay, so you've been, you've been talking a lot on the Joe Rogan podcast, which actually already also um, surprised me a little bit as you uh, tried to explain how, you, how it's not possible to get reinfected. So now, yeah, the, has anything, you know, this is, yeah. this is a <clears throat> part of science. 
I went on Joe Rogan December 8th. Mm. December 10th, the news broke right. that you could get COVID-19 a second time. So it's simply a matter of timing. If I would have went on Joe Rogan December 10th, I would have told Joe Rogan you can get COVID-19 right. a second time. So it's pretty obvious that Omicron has broken through natural immunity. It also right. has broken through vaccine immunity. Omicron arose in the vaccinated on the border of Botswana, as it's reported out of South Africa. Omicron is mm. the most highly mutated form of the virus. It doesn't invade the body nearly as much because it's mutated in the receptor binding domain. It's a mild form of the virus. It replicates 70 times faster than Delta and provides right. back immunity against Delta. So Omicron okay. competed against Delta in one because it can replicate so much faster than Delta and it closes the immunologic door. So now in the United States, we're 98% Omicron. Right. It's broken through both natural and uh, vaccine immunity. And now this is part of science. I mean, the day this news broke, I got on national TV and I explained it. Mm -hmm. But people always said, aha, you said this. And they want to they want to make a big deal about it. Say, hey, listen, right. the, 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 the science changes and that's what we know. Right. And I, I actually that that's that was why I was bringing that up now so that you can make that point clear. And I really appreciate you explaining that because um, because, yeah, and also um, basically agreeing, you know, that um, it's important and it's good actually to that, that your views might change. And that's actually part of science. And that's a good thing. And so that's what's what ha what's happened. And um, also probably back then um, the claim or the 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 careful assumption you made uh, that wasn't a claim at all per se, but an assumption that um, Omicron was sort of an evolutionary mistake, and so that would probably not uh, apply anymore because, as you as you explained, there are some advantages, if you will, um, in comparison to Delta, right? Right, right. I initially thought it could be an evolutionary mistake because it simply couldn't uh, invade the body nearly as much and, and have a, an existence. But once the news broke out of uh, Hong Kong University that it could replicate, Okay, 70 times faster that that it became obvious it actually had an evolutionary advantage yeah okay awesome so and would you think that um that we, it will be possible to to finally um to finally reach herd immunity with um with omicron because um you know as you said omicron was able to to basically um you know move past natural immunity acquired from Delta. But now, um, how, how is it, how is it going to work? Is it, is it, is it, did, did Omicron develop as a vaccine escape variant? And so is it something that natural, uh, that might spread now because it's, because it's spreading so quickly in almost every case is Omicron now, and will it provide actually sustainable natural immunity that might help us get through that pandemic more quickly and end it? Sooner. Well, it was it, it was clear with uh, it, the first vaccine escape mutant was Delta, and mm. uh, Delta clearly escaped the effects of the vaccines. It was shown by Fahrenholt, Venkata Krishnan, Hedamaki. I mean, many authors show the vaccines uh, could actually be beaten by the Delta variant. So we've had the Delta outbreak uh, through most of 2021. The vaccines had very poor coverage. Uh, a paper by Young Zhu and colleagues. Uh, published in JAMA, mm. showed that in high Delta areas, there was only 20% vaccine efficacy. There were papers by uh, mm. Reimer Risma and 
and Acharyan showing that the viral load of Delta in, in the nose of somebody vaccinated was equal to that of right. somebody unvaccinated. So it was clear the vaccines weren't sterilizing Delta in the nose and mouth. And that's the reason why there were so many Delta cases as the vaccines failed. One of the <clears throat> big examples of that was Israel, where Israel was fairly reporting the data. And there was far more people fully vaccinated with boosters getting Delta than the unvaccinated. Right. And now uh, with Omicron, it's clear by the UK Public Health Security Report, a paper by Hansen, that it's clear that Omicron is simply not covered by the vaccines whatsoever. Uh, there's been a few papers, one by Kali in the New England Journal of Medicine from South Africa, and the CDC has a bundle of papers uh, that I think incorrectly uh, try to demonstrate that the vaccines or boosters have uh, protection against Omicron. And the reason why they're flawed is because they're not randomized. Uh, they're based on hospitalization data where the, the hospitalizations are not adjudicated for if they have a respiratory illness or not. And not mm -hmm. only that, but there's differential testing applied. So the unvaccinated get a lot more testing than the vaccinated. So all these hospitalization claims that the vaccines protect against hospitalization, in my view, are not valid. And we know that because in the UK, Denmark, Germany, and South Africa, far more patients fully vaccinated with boosters are sick with COVID-19 than the unvaccinated. So the vaccines have yes. basically backfired. Well, you know, one, one question that comes to mind now um, is, does it then actually make any sense to vaccinate or do like mass vaccinations against a, a respiratory virus? Because you might say, well, what, what actually happens is that because the, the virus will just um, keep producing vaccine escape variants and we will actually never be able to, to develop a sustainable, uh, long-term effective uh, herd immunity. And so, you know, it will, it will continue to happen this way. So yeah, it's ill-advised. It's 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 ill-advised to have indiscriminate vaccination against a widely prevalent respiratory virus. It's a giant mm -hmm. mistake. Uh, experts told public health agencies way ahead of time, "Don't do this. This is a mm -hmm. giant mistake. The virus will just mutate." It's right. obvious. There was warnings. I published an op-ed in the Hill before the vaccine data even came out, uh, making the case that the vaccines were a giant gamble. Now, if we would have just had the vaccines uh, to protect the high-risk seniors, that would be along the lines of the Great Barrington Declaration, just protect high-risk seniors and nursing home workers. In the United States, that meant probably uh, fewer than 3 million people who got a vaccine. Uh, and let's say it was safe and it did work. You know, that could be done. Uh, but to right. try to widely vaccinate, and it's just carried to just extremes, vaccinating children and other people, uh, it's been a disaster. There are three analyses, one by Subramanian, one by Kampf, and the last one by Beattie, showing that mass vaccination is backfiring. Everywhere where there's high density of vaccination, like Germany, it's worse. You have more cases, right. more mortality. The vaccines clearly don't work and they're backfiring. Well, we see it in Israel right now, right? They are like um, doing the fourth shot, giving the fourth shot to everyone right now. And I think they have you now one of the highest numbers of cases in the entire in the world. So we're clearly seeing it actually going in the opposite direction. So that's an interesting thing. Um, well, there's, there's no, put it this way, there's no signals that mass vaccination is working yes. at all. Zero. Zero. There's right. nothing to support mass vaccination. In fact, I think they should be dropped altogether. Take them off the market and then right. we'll just treat the high risk people because we're just going to pr produce more mutant strains. Omicron is very mild. If we stopped mm. here, 
you know, we're on the backside of our Omicron curve. I think Germany is too. There's not going to be that many, many more cases. If we quit the vaccines right now, we probably could get out of this. But if we continue to vaccinate, we'll have more mutants. And there's even a new mutant called the Omicron subvariant BA2 that's on the mm. horizon. It's like it's all because of vaccination. <laughs> well, um, yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'd like to ask you a few more questions on the vaccine. But before coming to, to these questions, I just want to go back to natural immunity for a second and tell you a funny story that's going on here in Germany. Because, um, you know, what's happened in Germany recently, which is hilarious, which is, you know, it's I don't I don't know if I should be extremely angry about it or just laugh about it because it's such a ridiculous thing. But it's um, they decreased the validity of the document, which, you know, which you uh, which you acquire if you have recovered from COVID. Right. Um, they have um, shortened its validity from six months to three months, saying basically natural immunity is a thing for three months before it was six months. And now it's three months, whereas like in other countries, like in Switzerland or Sweden or Russia, even they prolong that to a year. And so that's that's so ridiculous because it's, um, you know, ev every every other country is doing like at prolonging the, th the the natural immunity passport or however you want to call it, the document um, and saying, OK, like natural immunity is probably a real thing and it lasts for for longer than six months. And now Germany comes and says, well, we're going to cut it in half and say it's only three months. So um, and it's it, well, I don't know for people who are maybe not really sure what's going on. What's what's your take on natural immunity? Natural immunity, uh, because the virus is so similar to SARS-CoV-1, it's basically it's permanent. It's permanent. So SARS-CoV-1, there's 17 years of immunity. There's been 140 uh, studies supporting natural immunity in COVID-19. It's not time limited. It's not six months or a year, mm. and so to yeah, put arbitrary, obviously. yeah, to put arbitrary time limits on it is not scientifically supported. I think putting time limits on it is trying to promote dangerous over vaccination because if someone is naturally recovered, they take a vaccine. All the studies show it's dangerous; it mm. causes harm, and no, and there's no opportunity for benefit, just an opportunity for harm. So I think these time limits are arbitrary and capricious. Yeah, well, I I absolutely agree and I hope things will change here. And um, at least like I, I also don't like these arbitrary cutoffs, like saying it, it lasts for three months, six months, whatever. But um, it's it's like to go to places here in Germany, you need to have you need to either be fully vaccinated or you need to have that document which proves that you have recovered from COVID. So and that's where it's being used. And I, um, you know, it's it's like now taking hope from those who, who actually recovered from COVID and thought that they would be now free for at least six months. And now they actually, you know, got the information that it's not only three months. So I hope this will change in the near future, hopefully, because there's no evidence. Now, remember, remember, if let's say there's a coffee shop in uh, Germany and they only let in people who are vaccinated. Uh, remember, a paper by Singer Rajam and colleagues published in Lancet, careful case contact to trace and study, shows 39% of transmission is from fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. So mm. uh, you can see how, you know, requiring vaccines to go into public places just promotes spread of the virus. It's not going to mm. work. It's probably going to worsen the pandemic. So um, uh, you can see how ill-advised 
right. and imperceptive uh, these public health policies are. Well, absolutely. And one, one question that I was thinking about um, <clears throat> where that whole narrative was going on, at least here in Germany, that the pandemic and the cases is driven by the unvaccinated because they spread the virus and they are so dangerous. So one thing that I was thinking about is um, it might, it, is, it, is it possible? And that's what I wanted to ask you because I, I didn't really find some clear mechanistic evidence or something that would support that. So I would like to ask your opinion on that, that um, vaccinated people might be able to transmit higher viral load without actually having the same magnitude of symptoms compared to an unvaccinated person, because the vaccine is basically, you know, shedding the symptoms and make, making them less, you know, um, <clears throat> profound, so to speak. And so then the vaccinated person doesn't know that or doesn't clearly know that he or she is sick or sick enough. And then it has, it still has a higher viral load compared say to an unvaccinated person. And so is that a reasonable idea? I mean, it's possible. It's just not supported in the evidence. The papers that have measured viral load are uh, Chow, <coughs> Rymerisma, Acherian, most recently, Acorsi. Acorsi in JAMA uh, measured those who've gotten one, two, or three shots, both mm. Delta and Omicron. And it's clear the vaccines have no impact on the virus, none. Right. So the viral loads in the nasopharynx are the same. So when they do become symptomatic, they equally spread the virus. Right. So there's absolutely no scientific support for a vaccine passport uh, or yeah, yeah. to have a business that only lets vaccinated in, none. So it should be dropped immediately. Vaccine passports should be dissolved uh, and vaccine mandates should be dissolved because there's no scientific support. And it's obvious the vaccinated are spreading it to one another. Yeah, and now moving now to vaccines and vaccine safety, because we've like already touched on that whole uh, whole issue. I've had some interesting conversations with my fellow, um, or at least, you know, I can remember with one fellow medical student about, um, you know, the discussion about should you get the vaccine or not. And one argument, <clears throat> you know, that's accepted or was at least accepted back then was, you know, we don't clearly know everything about vaccine safety, and that's definitely something that we will be talking about today with you. But, um, and so he accepted that <clears throat> concern, so to speak. But another thing that he was always bringing up is like, but you, it, it's not only about you, it's like you protect others, right? So you, when you take the vaccine, you protect the healthcare system from being overwhelmed by sick patients. And also you protect like your grandmother or whatever from, so what, and you know, back then I, <clears throat> I tried to explain that issue with uh, vaccinated people actually having the same viral load as unvaccinated people. Probably back, back then it was like half a year ago or something that was probably not that much evidence to back that up. But I think right now that probably is. But again, what, what, would, you, what would your response be to such a claim? Yeah, the, 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 that's a false claim. Uh, taking a vaccine doesn't protect anybody else since the vaccines don't stop spread of infection. Fully vaccinated people spread it to one another. Being vaccinated is not protecting anybody uh, at all. And it, there's never been any support for that claim. The only reason to take a vaccine is to try to reduce the binary occurrence of COVID-19 respiratory illness. That's in the regulatory mm -hmm. package of all the vaccines. The claim that the vaccine manufacturers have is that they reduce the binary occurrence of COVID-19 and respiratory infection. Even in the Pfizer program, 
in the Pfizer program, uh, there was no reduction in death or hospitalization. The entire Pfizer mm. program in the dossier, there were 21 deaths in the Pfizer vaccine group and 17 deaths in the placebo group. So we knew from the very beginning that Pfizer did not reduce death or hospitalization. And so the claims that vaccines reduce hospitalization, I think are, I think they're invalid. Oh, interesting, because like that was something which at least I, you know, kept considering as somewhat of a valid argument saying like uh, that it at least reduces severe or the, the chances of um, developing a severe case, because that was like for the past whatever, one year or so, it was the main argument. It's, you know, it prevents severe illness. So you, you say well, that's not the case. It, it, it never was shown in the randomized trials. Again, that mm -hmm. became an imaginary argument, just like uh, asymptomatic spread and, and just like uh, <coughs> um, uh, vaccine uh, stopping spread. These are just false mm -hmm. narratives that came mm -hmm. out of our government agents. Remember, we've had false narratives from the very beginning. And, and, and this one's another one. Well, interesting. So um, another another claim. Well, that claim we've already discussed. Okay. So now now let's let's maybe talk about um, talk about the the issues or concerns regarding vaccine safety, uh, because that's I think a topic which is I I I I think it should be less controversial and there should be so much more um, actually freedom and space to to be able to talk about it. That's a thing that you know I've heard. Also, Dr. Robert Malone speak on that topic on, on the Joe Rogan podcast. And one thing that he brought up, which I which very highly resonated with me, was that um, you cannot you it, it's not that you, you should you have to prove that uh, medical intervention is um, not harmful. You actually have to to assume that it is harm, harmful in the first place. And then you should need to get to take steps to actually prove that it's not harmful and not the other way around. And so people still shut down any voice that, you know, tries to raise con concern on that on that whole issue. And so um, I just want to go through these things. So one issue that um, that is very um, which is which has been talked about uh, recently a lot was the whole my myocarditis thing. So what's what's the magnitude of, of this um, side effect? Because there are various um, claims, silly or not, it's like these are all mild cases. These are very rare cases. I've been talking to a doctor recently and she's been telling me that the risk of getting a severe case of myocarditis after COVID is actually much higher than after the vaccine. So the vaccine is still better than COVID. So there are all these claims. And so what, what would you say on, on all of that? There's been all these attempts to try to normalize the catastrophic outcomes of the vaccines, and, and none of them are valid. In fact, most of them are just unethical or immoral to even propose. I'm going to read to you the CDC Vaccine Averse Event Reporting System data. Now, this is a gross underreporting of what's going on. Right. This is underreporting, but these are validated cases. These are ones, 86% uh, of the time, these are reported by doctors, nurses, healthcare personnel, <coughs> and who are concerned the vaccines cause these problems. That's the reason why they were uh, put into the system and verified. Keep in mind, 50 deaths, typically a product is taken off the market, a widely used product, 50. Five get a black box warning. You know how many deaths we've had in our CDC VAR system? 22,193 people sadly have died a few days after taking the vaccine. We have over 300,000 individuals, 300,000 individuals have been hospitalized, urgent care visits, 
office visits. We've had 39,150 people permanently disabled. We've had 27,674 cases of myocarditis, pericarditis. It is not rare. We have papers on myocarditis. Now there's 200 peer-reviewed publications on vaccine-induced myocarditis. That should tell you something. Our FDA says that Pfizer and Moderna caused myocarditis. This is not controversial. It causes mm. myocarditis. Uh, the, uh, the most recent estimates are by Scharf and colleagues. Uh, the peak age group is, could be your age group, age 18 to 24. Uh, there, mm. it's between 400 and 500 cases per million. 90% right. are in men. I've published with Rose and colleagues that the, the risk extends up to age 50 in men. This is catastrophic. This mm. is not controversial. Uh, the respiratory infection doesn't cause myocarditis. That's been disproven in a paper mm. by Joy and colleagues. Doesn't cause clinical myocarditis like the vaccines do. So these are, these are attempts, people are saying these things to try to normalize uh, what is just an awful catastrophic outcome. People losing their lives, being permanently disabled, being damaged with the vaccines is absolutely unacceptable. This is like a war. These are like, this mm. is like a war that's happened in America. Now these people, we have a million and five and 53,828 full safety reports in 200 million people who took the vaccine. The people who take the vaccine basically regret that they took the vaccine. There are so many injured and damaged people after the vaccine. Uh, the myocarditis, uh, you know, the vast majority of the kids have to be hospitalized and need treatment medications. They have to be taken out of sports for months. Right. Uh, marathoner Fabian Trump from Switzerland, uh, you know, told local reporters she took the vaccine uh, and, you know, and boosted. A young person like her doesn't need to take the vaccine because COVID's so mild. Young person like you, COVID is less than a common cold. Right. There'd be no reason right. for you to take a vaccine. She takes the vaccine. Now she can't run. She's got myocarditis. Right. She's she's out of contention. Uh, we have record numbers of European athletes dying on the field with cardiac arrest. About half of them uh, do not survive. Now we don't know if they've disclosed if they've taken if they've taken the vaccine or not, but it's very uh, suspicious. You, you know the highest rate of death is from a paper is estimated by Pantazakos and Seligman and colleagues from Colombia. They think with the U.S. program, we may have had up to 187,000 Americans now mm -hmm. who've died after the vaccine. That's based on the census data and the vaccine administration data. I mean, that's catastrophic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. Americans have seen their loved ones die with the vaccine. That's the reason why people are protesting. You know, in Canada, yes. they're trying to shut down the country with the truckers. There's protests on Sunday. There's protests in the United States, but all across Europe, People are protesting because they know they can die with the vaccine. I right. mean, that's the reason why they're protesting. If the vaccine was safe and effective, everyone would take it. It's obviously not. Yes, yes, and um, it's it's you know very important points that that you discuss here, and um, it's it's actually been the the reasons why I've been concerned with with the with the whole vaccine thing because you know I'm I'm in that category. I'm 18 years old and I'm very active, so I'm I'm I'm, I'm you know training a lot, doing lots of exercise, and so. Um, okay, but move, moving on to, to another issue, um, another topic that has been coming up recently was uh, possible uh, connections with, with, you know, this repeated booster and vaccine application and long-term damage to the immune system. So is there any possible connection? The World Health Organization has brought that up, that repeated boosters, since the boosters don't cover Omicron, uh, there's no randomized data showing that boosters would uh, even 
uh, even have a hint of covering Omicron, that giving boosters, since it doesn't cover COVID, all that's going to do is potentially damage the immune system because with each vaccination, there's an installation of the spike protein. Now, remember, the spike protein itself is a dangerous part of the virus. These are genetic mm-hmm. vaccines. They they harness a mosaic of cells to produce this abnormal protein. <laughs> the vaccines go into the brain, the heart, mm-hmm. the other vital organs. They cause blood clotting, damage blood vessel cells. Uh, and so they, uh, you know, the vaccines themselves have a dangerous mechanism of action. Now we've learned paper by Bruce uh, uh, Patterson, paper by Banzo and colleagues, the spike protein is installed in the human body, the, both the S1 and the S2 segment, after vaccination, probably for over a year. So with each shot, you have a year to clear out this foreign protein. No wonder people feel bad after taking the vaccines, but then keep mm. taking boosters. The spike protein continues to accumulate with no hope of getting it out of the body. So from a biologic right. perspective, it's an unqualified disaster. And so that probably also explains the possible link with increased autoimmunity, because I've heard like from from friends, um, or at least, you know, there's one one friend who works in a hospital, and she's been telling me that uh, she's been talking to some immunologists, and they've, they've been telling her that there's been many more cases. And one one fellow medical student has has told me that on uh, on one occasion in university, um, the professor has um, introduced him to a cause of Guillain-Barré syndrome developed after two shots of the Moderna vaccine. And so that might be a reason because the spike protein actually accumulates in places where it doesn't belong to. Is that plausible? It's true. Um, although the Guillain-Barré syndrome is seen high with the adenoviral vector vaccine, so just the adenoviral vector itself potentially mm, can cause Guillain-Barré. But, but remember, for young people, one case of myocarditis is too many. Remember, yes. one case of Guillain-Barré is too many. An analysis by Hogan colleagues shows that a young person your age, you're far more likely to be damaged and be hospitalized with myocarditis than ever be hospitalized with the right. respiratory illness. That a paper by Kostoff and colleagues shows you're more likely to die and lose your life with the vaccine mm then take your chances with the respiratory illness. And that's before Omicron. Omicron is so mild. I mean, no one would take a vaccine and risk death in order to prevent Omicron. Uh, it's, uh, these are bad trade-offs. The, the data yes. are clear right now. Yeah, that's, that, that's very true. And so, um, you know, people are, at least many of those who have been somewhat concerned with the mRNA vaccines, there are maybe, you know, some of them have been saying that, well, maybe I'm going to be waiting for for some non-mRNA-based vaccines, like these protein-based vaccines, Novavax, and what have we, um, I think that was um, um, Velneva or so. And so these vaccines have another mechanism of action. And so would you say that these might be a safer option for those people or in general? And, you know, would that be something that someone would consider to take if they would have to, like in... If, if, if that would be on the market. So what's your opinion on, on these other vaccines, which are not mRNA-based? Right. So the antigen-based vaccines have the same shortcoming as messenger RNA vaccines. They're coded against the original Wuhan spike protein, which is which is now um, obsolete. So we oh, yeah. don't know if the, if the new vaccines would even cover Omicron. Omicron is so mild that I, I think a vaccine at this point in time is obsolete. But what about the dangers? Like, would they be at least, yeah, like we all know, and you've probably explained why 
in general, vaccines against a re respiratory virus like COVID wouldn't probably do much in terms of stopping and uh, um, basically dissolving the pandemic. Uh, but would would it be less harmful, in your opinion? I, it's potentially le uh, less dangerous, that's for sure. I reviewed the data package for the Novavax vaccine, where with the legacy variants, it was about 90% effective. So as good as Pfizer, Moderna caused a mm. sore arm. In fact, the arm was sore more sore than with Pfizer and Moderna, but less systemic right. effects. So it's a limited amount of spike protein, but but I boy, see. they even have to change those vaccines. The the virus is just mutating too fast for vaccines. Right. To All right. So um, you know, before wrapping up, and I've I've you know so many more things I would actually like to ask you, but we're kind of running out of time here. Right. And um, some some just some final questions before we finish this podcast, um, which I've been asked by some of my followers. And so uh, one follower asked, what about quercetin? Or well, I know it's quercetin, whatever it's pronounced. Um, have you heard of that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, we so do is there any validity it. in using it? Yeah, it's a polyphenol supplement there. You know, there's some uh, mildly supportive data for quercetin, 500 milligrams twice a day. There's better data for vitamin D, uh, 5,000 right. international units a day. We increase that to 20. Thousand units a day for treatment. Zinc, recent paper out of Florida, is mm. zinc preventively, 50 milligrams of elemental zinc. There's support for all of those, even mm -hmm. pre-hospital use of famotidine, which is an antihistamine, uh, pepsid or famotidine, 80 mm -hmm. milligrams a day. That, what I've just described is called our nutraceutical bundle. Uh, those are available over-the-counter products that work well in addition to the oral nasal washers. With Omicron, we rarely have to prescribe medicines. It's interesting. Right. You know, I get called with patients all day long and I haven't even used the Pfizer drug. In fact, I tried to use it yesterday and a patient didn't want it because the patient mm -hmm. says they don't trust Pfizer. So interesting. <laughs> That's funny. Well, <laughs> okay, another question um, that, that I was asking myself was basically, uh, would you have done uh, what what exactly would you have done different um, as a, in, 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 in contrast to like Fauci or <clears throat> other people in power? If you actually had the power Fauci is having, you know, how, what would it, or, you know, you, you could ask, what would a proper response to the pandemic have actually looked like? Yeah, you're right. So I have more publications and more experience with day safety monitoring board than any of the federal officials. So I guess I am the person of authority in the United States. And I would tell them that we would have a four pronged approach. So we would have the first pillar of the pandemic response. So we'd have a team of doctors working to reduce the spread of the virus. The second pillar would be early treatment, a team on early treatment. Uh, we need a team on the third pillar, late treatment, and a team on vaccination. So we should have had four teams in Washington reporting to Americans at least once a month, at least once a month. And then we should have had a continuous review of all the data, of all the data on treatments and uh, as things emerged on <coughs> vaccines. And since we never had that quality, uh, we didn't have the right organization, we didn't have uh, high quality doctors working in Washington, doctors who were board certified, who were taking care of patients, we never had that level of quality. Our pandemic response has been terrible. Uh, right. And so the doctors in Washington still don't even know what COVID is. Uh, they're not even aware of these advancements. They're not even aware of the virucidal random, uh, nasal washes and the randomized mm. trials. It's, it's been absolutely terrible. And with the vaccines, what happened is uh, we should have had a separate group, a separate new entity lead the vaccine public program. And then it needed an independent data safety monitoring board, clinical event committee, and a, a bioethics committee. 
The, the, the FDA should have been the safety watchdog. The NIH should be the government research body. And then the CDC should be an outbreak investigation body. But instead, we have the wrong people leading the vaccine program. The, the FDA is leading the U.S. vaccine program with the CDC. That means nobody's watching after safety. To this day, we still have not had a safety report. Can you imagine right. that? They're a year overdue. Our first safety report should have been in February. They are a year late in reporting safety. Can you imagine when they discover that there's been 21,000 people have died after the vaccines? I mean, that's going to be quite a day in Washington when they discover that. Well, yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. And, you know, another question would then be, what's your honest prognosis on this whole thing? Maybe also from a from both from a political perspective, how is it going to continue? And maybe from a straightforward, logical, epidemiological infectious disease perspective, because these are probably two different prognoses to make. We just finished the very tall but narrow Omicron outbreak curve. There's not that many people left who are susceptible. There really are not. So I think we're going to see some low level <coughs> cases I think the mass vaccination is going to prolong the pandemic. We'll probably be have several more strains, but um, uh, it, you know, so far we've really it's really been progressively more mild. The vaccines will remain obsolete. Uh, the early treatments uh, continue to remain effective, and um, you know, I think that's where we're going to go go from here. It's too bad. Yeah. I think a, a better scenario would be drop all, all the mandates, drop all the vaccines declare an end to the emergency and then just treat the occasional high-risk patient that we see because we're going to do that anyway so when when do you think is that going to happen because that sounds like a very optimistic sort of scenario which i think everyone with a reasonable mind and perspective on that topic would would wish to happen but um you know i even though i i, I would like to be very optimistic about that i currently you know especially watching what is happening in germany um You know, I, I don't I don't feel that optimistic about this exact scenario. So what what, what do you think is, um, you know, the, the time frame that we are talking about? It really depends on the, the it really depends on the leaders. You know, in the UK, they mm, just dropped right. everything. UK is not that far away from you. They just dropped everything. So it really depends on the competency exactly. of the leaders. So if you have incompetent leaders, they're going to continue the vaccine program. That'll be a good litmus test. Well, yeah, that's kind of seems to be the case here in Germany to maybe be a bit that, that's too bad G Germans are smart people but you have to get your smartest people in charge yeah. of the public health agencies otherwise you'll you'll languish as a population yeah that's true um so Dr. Peter McCall has a final last question for you and then we'll wrap up the podcast um you know let me start here like it's been very frustrating for me to like talk to my fellow medical students and I already you know um, told one example about that topic and here like also other experts and doctors discuss that and you know make people panic even more and um, shut down all the skepticism that people or concerns that people try to um, to to basically to suggest and deepen the split in society, you know, making people hate each other even more. So it's been, you know, crazy things going on. And so my question would be at the end, um, is there maybe some piece of advice that you would like to give to to the medical students, to the medical community, and maybe especially to students, to the young people who are listening to that? Because I've been, pro I've probably have some, some medical students listening to my podcast and some of my um, friends who are you know the same age as me or in the same age group and so for the for the young students for the young medical students 
for the young people. Um, just is there anything you can you could tell tell them that you would like to tell them? I, I, I would tell a, a medical student that in a time of crisis, you'll see uh, a large number of doctors moving in one direction. You want to find the doctor who's outside of that group. You want to find the doctor who's got an innovative approach. Because in the setting of crisis, the vast majority uh, actually do not innovate. Uh, the vast majority do not have courage. The vast majority don't have integrity to actually follow uh, the right pathway. And so mm -hmm. don't follow the crowd because in the setting of a crisis, it'll be a mistake. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, uh, it's like uh, you know, it's some type of public panic in a square. Everyone runs in the wrong direction. You have to find the people who have the courage to stand outside the crowd and find mm. the right direction. This was obvious. Find the doctors who learned how to treat COVID-19. Find the doctors who knew how to analyze vaccine safety and efficacy. You know, the very first doctor who put a patient with polio on the iron lung machine was basically uh, thrown off staff and castigated. Uh, mm. You know, the doctor in Austria, Germany, who said to wash their hands after delivering babies. Right. Uh, you know, he was castigated. You want to find those doctors. Right now, the doctors who have figured out how to treat COVID-19 that say they should use drugs in combination are the same doctors that say the vaccines aren't working or not safe. You want to follow those doctors. Listen, I went on Joe Rogan. And do you know how many people have analyzed every word of what I said on Joe Rogan? And I showed up with slides, the citations. Yeah. And you know what? They should analyze every word because you know what? They're analyzing every word that I said because they're seeking truth. They're not analyzing yeah. other people. Do you know other people go on other podcasts? They don't get analyzed. I'm getting yes. analyzed because I have the right approach. That's the reason why I'm being analyzed. Listen, I got to get going. Well, yeah, absolutely. Thank, thanks a lot for being on and for coming to the show. That's been really insightful. Okay. And so where where can people find you? Just okay. tell us where, you know. Oh, you, you can follow me on America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. Everything I do awesome. is fully cited. Uh, it's very entertaining. We have music. We have experts that come on. Uh, free interchange of ideas. You, you'll find the leaders in COVID-19 will be on the program. Awesome. Okay. That's Thank you. All right. How did you like it? I think it was a great success. Again, very, very, very much appreciated that Dr. Peter McCullough uh, was willing to come onto the show. I think, like, I'm extremely grateful for, for you know, for that commitment, and I think it speaks for him being a, an honest man and someone who is genuinely interested in spreading the message and making people aware of the nonsense that's happening. And he's basically the first guest on my show that I've been talking to in regards to COVID and the pan pandemic and all the things that maybe go wrong or have gone wrong. And I think we, we've, been, we've covered all of that in this episode, or most of it at least. I hope that I could and uh, that I could, you know, that I managed to ask most of the questions that you guys uh, also that I've been asking you to, to, to give me so that I could, you know, ask these questions to Dr. McCullough. And he provided most of the answers. And uh, I think it's been a very successful conversation, a very great podcast. 
Um, so yeah, and especially I especially liked the advice that he gave at the end of the episode. And I think that's what everyone should be thinking more about. Uh, basically, the idea that um, in a crisis, in a pandemic, in such a critical situation, maybe following the crowd and following everyone is not the best solution. Look out for those people who stick out and maybe independently come to different conclusions uh, as opposed to blindly following the crowd because that doesn't necessarily have to be the right way to go about things. Um, so, and I think we clearly see that happening and unraveling um, right now. So, again, I really hope you enjoyed listening to the episode. If you have any remaining questions, um, you can always text me on Instagram at monkey underscore Kelly Playground. You can text me on Twitter. You can text me per email. You can write me an email for anything, you know, whatever it might be that you might write me an email for. at sapiens.playground at web.de. Um, so that's basically how you can reach me if you like. And everything else, you can you will find all the links in the show notes. Also where you can find Dr. Peter McCullough and his protocol and follow him also on Instagram. So that's going to be it for today. Let's spread the word together and let's hope that this whole nonsense will be over as soon as possible. Stay healthy, guys. Stay strong. Stay fit. You know, keep an eye on your health and everything is going to be good. Spread the message. And I'm looking forward to the next guest.